0: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. We are at episode number 20 and with this new milestone comes another milestone, Barry, the second time we're recording this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Chad, Chad, I must apologize. I feel like a complete idiot. Guys, we recorded an
1: entire episode. It was amazing. It was going really well. And then I looked over to my audio recording equipment and found out that I didn't press record. So, I feel like a real (laughs) idiot. Um, So, we're going to try this again. I promise you, everything's recording now, Chad, so we're good to go. Um, But at least now we've warmed up, and so I think it's going to be a good one.
0: Hey, these things happen to the best of us. Um, But Barry, as we convene on this occasion, uh, quite crazy times. Uh, You're in a new location as well. Had to pack up all your stuff last night, right?
1: Yeah, it feels like we're living in a movie, right? So we, we're going to get to it, but obviously the whole of yep. South Africa is going into shutdown. So I'm moving into my parents' place for a little bit, because otherwise I'll go insane living by myself <laughs> in my flat. Um, so a new location, we'll be here for a little bit, um, but crazy times we're living in, that's for sure.
0: Well, strap in and welcome to Across the Pond. pond, pond across, across the, the pond, pond, with Barry and Chad. So you here at another week of Across the Pond. Loads to talk about, like we just discussed. Um, some crazy times, Barry. Your f- phone has been flooding with messages. What have people been saying?
1: I think everyone is a bit panicky right now. Lots of anxiety. Everyone is a bit worried about what's to come. I think we are going into extraordinary times. Like, I certainly haven't lived through anything like this in my yeah. life. And so it's really going to test, I think, everyone's uh, willpower. It's going to test everyone's ability to stay sane. And uh, yes. I think we're in for a rough ride. So lots, lots to talk about.
0: Well, let's get into it. The week that was... So let's start this episode off with a bit of a COVID-19 update. We're kind of going to tackle it in the same sort of fashion that we did last week, um, except we're not going to, that's not going to be the core focus of this episode. We're not going to spend the whole episode talking about it. Uh, so let's go into some of the regions um, and look at what happened this last week. Uh, let's start off with my side of the pond. I'm again in London. If you're new to this podcast, Barry is tuned in via Skype in Johannesburg in South Africa. And uh, yeah, let's tackle some of those things. So the Bank of England has cut their interest rate to the lowest level. Level in history again. Last week we chatted about the rate that was set back then and it's been dropped further again now to 0.1%. Some pretty crazy measures. Definitely, I think it's I think it's par for the course. I think all the governments around the world are
1: trying to find ways to cushion that economic blow, and by moving interest rates, that's one of the only levers these guys have to actually make things happen. So it's not too, not too surprising. I think Chad we're on the road, especially in the UK, towards negative interest rates. Right. So we, we've seen we've seen in the US and some of Scandinavia we've seen negative interest rates in the past, and they don't quite make sense in my brain, but but they are legit and they are real. <laughs> and I, for some reason, I think the UK is on that on that route. Right. I don't think this is the bottom. I think as things get worse, it could even go below zero.
0: Yeah, crazy thought that uh, to have to actually pay interest to have money in an account, um, but certainly not something we're going to rule out just right now. Some of the other things that happened this past week, uh, UK schools were asked to close. This is something we spent quite a lot of time talking about last week. Uh, it looks like some common sense prevailed there and they actually closed those. Um, further to this, f- some 40 tube stations in London uh, were shut down and uh, basically around 80% of, of the lines uh, general um, data day was actually cut short. Um, Bars, restaurants, cafes, cinemas, theatres, leisure centres and gyms were banned as well. Um, And on top of this, basically last night uh, being Monday, uh, there was the escalation of a lockdown. Um, which obviously we've been seeing across the globe um, strange now to finally see uh, back on my home turf as well um, and yeah definitely feels weird uh, being on this side of the lockdown um, so just to clarify what this actually means um, the default position we obviously watched Boris Johnson putting out his press briefing and it was quite a formal one really um, it was almost looked like a recorded message he was reading off of an auto queue something uh, you know you definitely it definitely sets the tone for anyone watching that um, but essentially you you must stay home, that's the default position. Uh, You can leave home in a set of certain circumstances, which are, uh, to go shopping, uh, this is for essentials like food and medicine. Um, You're allowed to leave the house for one form of exercise per day. This must be alone or with a member of your own household. So if previously you were meeting up with the guy down the street to go for a run uh, and keep two meters distance, that is no longer happening, just you or the people in your own household. Um, You can leave the house for a medical need um, or if you are one of these key workers, there's a specific list that the government has put out of who is and isn't a key worker. Um, You obviously need to travel to and from work. um, So that's essentially all of the conditions from which you can leave the house. Uh, What he mentioned was that the police uh, will be equipped to uh, address people who do not follow by these rules um, and could even fine them. Um, So yeah, certainly quite a lockdown we're seeing on this side.
1: Lots of interesting developments there, and why I think it's interesting, Chad, is because we chatted last week about the fact that the UK was probably doing something different to the rest of the world, and they were yep. trying to delay these sorts of measures because they thought they wanted to try and time the peak a bit better. So this feels to me a little bit like a 180 shift. I don't know. How f- I don't know what it feels like on the ground, but but does this feel like a change in strategy from the UK?
0: It definitely does. Um, Completely A complete change. Um, I I think, like you said, they've been kind of erring on the conservative side of this, obviously. uh, Excuse the pun there. Um, But yeah, certainly kind of getting into these measures in in a sort of step-by-step approach, um, which is interesting because, as we know, there's a a lag on the data, Um, you know, as the data comes out in terms of how many cases there are and uh, a lot of tests actually not being done. Um, So it's been interesting to see that that approach has been followed. But I completely agree with you there. It does feel like a 180. Degree on this side, um, and and so certainly everyone is uh, you know within their within their means and within their rights to feel a little bit panicked, um, which you know I suppose uh, is human nature really. Um, so yeah, really interesting uh, to see that. The one thing that I wanted to mention about the the police point um, is that straight after the briefing, a couple of minutes later, the uh, chairman of the Met Office actually made a statement to say that they hadn't been briefed by government on this, um, and you know they weren't actually equipped to to handle this. Uh, which is really quite an interesting one.
1: Yeah, that is that is crazy. I mean, you'd assume everyone is talking to each other and it was in the same meetings, okay. but I guess, I'm guessing with the kind of speed that things are happening and how urgent this is, I'm sure this, so, things are changing on an hour by hour basis, um, and so definitely a. Kind of an embarrassing mixed messaging there. I mean, you obviously want to show like one unified front as a government with all the public services behind it. And especially yeah. in a lockdown like this, the police are super important. So it's really not a good sign if, you, if your police and your government aren't seeing eye to eye so much. Um, so hopefully they'll rectify that in the coming days and that the strategy and whatever the lockdown's going to look like on the UK side, that everyone's on the same page.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just to talk about that 180 as well, uh, I think a lot of people have been kind of Enacting this as a lockdown um, for the for the past couple of days, anyway. Um, But I mean, obviously, like I said, you you may have still met up with a friend in the park uh, to go for a walk and and kept that two meter distance. Um, That's now not happening anymore. Uh, If you needed to go to the shops for anything specific, I mean, I went to go and buy puzzles uh, just to keep us busy. Um, You know, you you kind of saw an empty mall anyway, but there were still shops trading. Uh, That's now changed. So any shop that is not considered essential um, has to shut their doors um, and effectively we've seen this as an overnight lockdown um, which is certainly interesting and we'll, we'll chat about the timing uh, a little bit later on. Um, some of the other things uh, obviously to mitigate these effects if we look on the economic effects of such a change um, is some of the measures that government have announced um, to sort of ease the blow for the people of the country um, and so we've actually seen government announce a whole suite of things. Uh, first thing being 330 billion pounds of available cash in the form of business loans. I don't know about you, Barry, but I can't comprehend the amount of cash that that is, 330 billion pounds. It's a staggering amount of money. I just did a quick Google search and it's about 7.6
1: trillion South African Rand, to put it in perspective. So it is a ginormous amount of money. And uh, I think coming from the UK, that kind of spending means, shows you how serious this is.
0: Definitely, everyone looked at that number and, and saw it as a huge number, and then government uh, introduced a couple more measures. Um, so one being an additional 20 billion pounds in grants uh, for certain small businesses, um, so obviously very different to, to a loan. Um, and additionally, and this one for me is quite staggering and, and quite a big thing to take on, the government really just flexing their muscle here, um, where they are offering to pay up to 80% of employees' wages and... Um, up to two and a half thousand pounds a month for three months. Massive, massive benefit, that.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of those things that really shows the wealth of a country like, like the UK when they have the, the pockets to be able to do these sorts of things. And like we'll chat about throughout this episode, like the impact on employees and the impact on small businesses is going to be immense from this. And so yeah. trying to cushion this blow with this kind of support is an incredible thing to do. And it's, it's, the, it's the reason that Britain are going to be okay throughout all of this, right? If you're able to keep your economy relatively stable throughout these turbulent times, then you set yourself up for a good recovery and and a good getting back to normal at the end of the day. Um, And so it's huge amounts of money. The question, of course, always comes down to how is this actually practically done. So how do you efficiently deploy this sort of capital? Um, How do you make sure the money's going to the right people in the right places? Um, And so obviously there's a lot of work to do still to try and figure out, cool, we've got this fund of cash, we've got this uh, little war chest, how do we distribute it? And that's gonna be where the rubber hits the road. Um, But on a pure numbers basis, it really is, should, should come as some comfort to those living in the UK that the government are really doing their best to make sure that economically the economy survives
0: absolutely i mean from the loan side uh, from what i understand is all of the sort of high street lenders and commercial banks um you'll you'll still go to them for funding and the extra tool that they'll have at their disposal is now an 80% uh, government backed guarantee um for for this for this money so potentially people who you know wouldn't have ordinarily attracted funding because of a certain uh, level of risk etc that that might now throw that equation a little bit over um which is which is an interesting tool to have like you said uh, in this war chest and, and that's also an, an interesting term to use um, is that you know Boris Johnson last night spoke of this government as a wartime government um, we are fighting like we said in our last uh, episode the invisible enemy quite interesting
1: yeah, it certainly feels like that. I mean, I've, I've never lived through a time like this, and I've never lived through a time where there's this kind of global energy around a certain topic, where there's this sort of like mass concern and mass worry about a certain thing. So it kind of feels like a war, right? It, it feels like we're fighting this, this enemy we can't see, we can't predict, we don't know where it is, um, but everyone is trying to rally together. And the kind of rationing we've seen, the kind of lockdowns we're going to
0: see throughout the next few weeks, that really does feel like a war. And then the last thing on the UK point, Barry, um, there's been some controversy that the one group of people who haven't really been addressed um, by these government's measures that they've put in place um, are those who are self-employed or who are freelancers. Um, You know, you and I were chatting about the the people you know who work in the West End. Um, It's like that gig type economy, those zero hour contracts. And all of these people, uh, all of those theatres obviously being instructed to close. Um, And uh, yeah, a lot of these people not being addressed because they weren't on a payroll at the end of February really really terrible times for them
1: yeah I think so I think it really points to the fact that our working world has shifted so much over the last few decades right so the kind of the traditional way of working where you got paid by an employer and they looked after your benefits and all that good stuff the world doesn't look like that anymore there's a huge sector of, like you say gig workers or people in theaters and whatnot are working on a project basis yep. of freelancers of self-employed people the the world the working world has changed so much and so this is really going to shine a light on that and show that the legislation we have in place and kind of the laws we have and all this good stuff might not be perfectly suited to how the working world looks today um, so hopefully this might, might shift some thinking around how do we actually help those people. I, I know yeah. for from, from myself, Chad, I've basically been freelancing and consulting for the last year or so. Yeah. And so I, I feel this pain directly. And like you said, I've got a lot of friends who are in theater, in theater um, worldwide across the West End here in South Africa, et cetera. And they're really in trouble because they don't have those benefits behind them. Yeah. So It's like, how do you support? Like, this gig economy is good because it allows flexibility. It theoretically allows more fulfillment for certain people. It, it, it's an interesting way of, of building our economy. But then when something like this happens, do you have the support structures in place or are you trying to build them as the plane is going down?
0: Absolutely. You're not alone there, Barry. I'm also directly affected by this, and we'll certainly see what uh, the UK government have uh, to add to these measures. I I certainly feel the social pressure will uh, build up. What they have done, which is very limited, um, is they've taken a piece of legislation called IR35, which was put there really to tax people who are seen to be employees, um, who are kind of running their consultancies through their own companies, um, as employees. Um, And so what they've done is they've delayed the escalation of that, um, where Essentially, companies who provide you with contracts now need to assess whether you could be in- included as an employee. Um, whereas previously, the, the consultant themselves could make that assessment, um, and they've now delayed that for a year. So, uh, you know, certainly will have a little bit of an effect, but at the moment, people are just not hiring contractors at all.
1: Yeah, I I think I think that's the one of the side effects of this is that anyone who doesn't have a permanent kind of set job in a big corporation is really going to struggle simply because these kinds of jobs, like you say, are just not guaranteed. Like what you gain in flexibility and what you gain in control of your hours and whatnot, you lose in stability. So when something like this happens, we go through these kind of times, you really are the first to, to lose out. Um, and so I think it, it really speaks to the fact that the working world has changed, but the way we think about social security and the way we think about stabilization of our economy hasn't changed yet. And yep. so hopefully when we start we start seeing these side effects and we see the impact it has on these on these kind of economies, we can change the way we operate. I mean, I'm thinking about companies like Uber and whatnot who have these giant, giant um, masses of contract workers who are in serious um, danger now. But Uber don't have a direct contact with each of those drivers, for example. So how do you as a society look after those people um, when they are outside of traditional employment paradigms and therefore aren't able to get like legal assistance and those sorts of things regarding the benefits? Uh, it's, It's a lot to think about.
0: Absolutely. Uh, really quite a conundrum that. Um, we'll only have to see over the next couple of months what unfolds. Now let's move on to your side of the pond, Barry, um, in South Africa. And uh, just a few hours before my announcement that, that I watched on this side, um, you guys had one of your own. Talk us through it. Yeah, so we
1: had our president, uh, Mr. Ramaphosa, speak last night, um, and the whole country was waiting to watch him because he was going to announce some stricter lockdown measures. And a lot of people were predicting a full lockdown, and they were completely correct. And so the announcement was actually very similar to what Boris announced, Chad, in in, in the kind of the way the lockdown is going to be put in place. And let me run through some of the points. The key thing is that South Africa is going to full shutdown from midnight on the 26th of March, that's this coming Thursday, uh, for 21 days. And that shutdown, what that means is that for 21 days, you have to stay at home, right? Yep. The only reasons for you to leave are very similar to what you mentioned earlier, is to go and buy food, to go to the hospital, get medical supplies, and that's pretty much it, right? So the idea is that everyone is gonna self-isolate themselves and uh, for 21 days, try and shut down the, c- the country so that we can try and slow the spread of this disease. The South African National Defense Force has um, deployed a bunch of soldiers around the city, to try, especially in Joburg, um, to try and help the, the police service uh, to actually enforce these rules. Yep. And quite interestingly, Chad, what I found out that, literally yesterday was that the Reserve Army barracks is actually in Craig Hall Park, like one street away from me,
0: wow. because
1: I saw these three <laughs> giant buses full of soldiers arriving. And that's yep. when I felt like I was in a movie. When I saw the soldiers arriving in Craig Hall on Smuts Avenue, like next to a rockamamas, then I realized, yep. Okay, this is real. This is not. no joke. This is not a drill. Uh, Things are about to get real. So yeah, so the army has been deployed to try and help the the police service with uh, enforcing all of this stuff and keeping things going. All shops and all businesses are closed um, for those 21 days with the exception of the following. So grocery stores are going to remain open so people can get food. Uh, Banks are going to stay open to help the uh, financial system work. The JCs are going to stay open. Um, Petrol stations, healthcare providers... And then any other companies that are directly involved in, say, the the transport or logistics of basic essentials, so food and medicine, right? So if you're delivering food or you're delivering medicine, et cetera, and you're in that supply chain, you'll stay open as well. Um, but everyone else needs to close, unless you can work remotely. So you can obviously work remotely if you need to. And a lot of the knowledge work, kind of white-collar work, will continue like that. Yep. Um, but for the majority of actual shops and businesses, they will close down. Um Obviously, this is going to have huge economic impacts. And we chatted about the amount of money that uh, the UK have pumped into this, to try and cushion that blow. Yep. Obviously, in the South African context, is a very different story, right? So we've seen that the South African government, we don't have the kind of cash reserves that would be needed for this this time. Um, we've been in a budget deficit for a while now, and there's been a lot of issues with having enough tax revenue. And as a country, we don't have the kind of wealth to be able to draw on. What the government has, has said is that they've started a fund called the Solidarity Fund, and a solidarity fund is, is our version of trying to mitigate that, that blow and try and su- support the people who are going to lose their jobs throughout this process. Yeah. Yeah. So, what this fund is basically, the government is going to seed the fund with 150 million Rand. So, that's the seed capital right at the beginning. There have been 2 billion Rand worth of donations from two families, the Ruperts and the Oppenheimers, who've donated 1 billion Rand each. And so, those are into the fund. And I know that sort Cyril of has been in talks for the last two days with the various private sector leaders across the country, and so what I'm imagining and what I'm predicting is that over the next couple of days we'll hear more and more big corporations and big blue chip companies donating funds to this to this um, the solidarity fund. Right. What this fund is hopefully going to do is going to help small businesses with some loans. It's going to try and provide temporary relief to try and pay wages of workers who otherwise wouldn't get paid and try and mitigate that that loss as, as best possible. We know that in 21 days, a lot of businesses are gonna have to close down completely. So we're gonna see lots of job losses. And so what this fund is trying to do is trying to support yep. those people to manage the economy as best we can. Another interesting thing about this fund is that what, he's, what Sorrel called for was some sort of crowdsourcing approach. So as far as I understand, you're gonna be able to, as an individual, go onto the website and donate your own money to try and help whoever you need to help. So I think it's it's an interesting move. It really shows the difference between, say, a UK and a US and a South Africa because the government just doesn't have the ability to pull billions and billions of rands out of their pockets. Um, And so I think South Africa is going to be in a real tough spot over the next couple of weeks, and we'll have to wait and see how this money is distributed as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I also tuned in to that uh, briefing. Um, and so, yeah, lo- last night was was just a crazy one, really, for me as well. Um, first, tuning into uh, the SA1 and then secondly, uh, into the UK one. And uh, some other things that I, I kind of also noted um, in, in terms of all the shops and businesses being closed. Um, as far as I understand, those who can work remotely uh, are still able to. Um, so definitely worth noting that. Um, on the back of the Solidarity Fund, uh, it looks like they're going to be setting up a website called Solidarity Fund. And like you said, I I think a lot of individuals will be able to uh, go in and and put their own contributions forward, Um, which is interesting. Like you said, this crowdsourcing approach. What else can you do ultimately Uh, when you're in a a country that has uh, been at the back of so much uh, corruption and uh, state capture in the past and and really so much money has just been lost uh, ultimately to to, to the government? um, What else can you do other than to ask individuals and corporates, um, you know, all of those blue chip type companies, um to actually start contributing and, uh, and and aid in in some of this uh, some of these efforts
1: yeah, it's a really interesting point because it kinda of, like you say, it's the only kind of thing we do we can do. There's the only real option that we have. Um, and one of the concerns obviously, like you say, with the, the history of state capture capture and corruption in this country, there's a serious worry about how this money is actually going to be used, right? Yep. So I so still we'll try to preempt a lot of these concerns by by announcing some real strict measures regarding corruption and profiteering from this fund. Yep. So you basically said like if anyone is trying to use this fund to profiteer or to um, to be to be corrupt and they're trying to siphon money out of this thing, they will be met with very, very strict fines and jail time. Um, and he was very, 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 very serious about that because obviously it's a big concern. Like you can you can throw billions of Rands into this fund, but the past of South Africa has shown us that it's likely those funds might not get to where they should go. So so where it really matters is are these funds being are they deployed in the right way? Do they meet the right criteria and do they get given to the right businesses and the right people. Um, I'm sure that everybody is going to be applying for this money across the board. And so it's going to be a real challenging thing to try and take this relatively small amounts of money, if we think about it in the greater scheme of things, yeah. and try and divvy it up to try and manage the economic impacts. I know, for, t- for, for example, Chad, I've been chatting to some of my friends and I'm on a bunch of entrepreneurial groups here in, in South Africa, and I've been chatting to a lot of guys who run small businesses. And a lot of them are sitting there not knowing how to operate because they've got like 80 staff they need to pay wages for. And it's all very well to say you've got this fund, but um, how do you know you're going to be able to get access to that money? So you're going to operate for the next two weeks waiting for the fund to be, be ready. By that stage, your business might be dead already.
0: Yeah, so many things to to unpack there. Uh, you, I mean, you're completely right. I think timing of this is uh, absolutely key in terms of all these measures, just like the chancellor this side, um, you know, Rishi Sunak came out and, and mentioned all of these other unprecedented measures. Um, but in terms of the, the practicalities of it, you know, where do you actually apply? Who's eligible to apply? Uh, lots of businesses need that cash and need it right now. A lot of companies have already uh, shed off so many jobs uh, on this side. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how quickly the the state policymakers are able to roll out all of these new uh, schemes and ultimately how quickly they're able to get that cash into the right pockets, um, which is also fascinating. Um, If we look at the the timing uh, of your lockdown, Barry, because that only actually comes into effect as far as I understand on on Thursday night, Uh, you guys have been given a couple of days grace just to to get things in order and, and prepare. Here in the UK, it was really in effect overnight.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think that a lot of the South Africans really appreciate the fact that we've got one or two days to get ourselves in order and get everything I- ready to go. Um, I think that today we've seen a lot of people queuing at shops to try and buy all sorts of stuff. Even though the shops are going to be open, people are still panicking and still yeah. trying to stockpile. So I saw yeah. videos of huge queues at all the grocery stores here. Uh, but like you say, I think for the next day or two, we're going to be working on trying to figure out, cool you are got to go down to lockdown. How do you make sure you're fine during those 21 days? And so everyone is kind of looking after themselves and their families and trying to make sure they're prepared for this as best you can. Um, I'm not sure what would have happened if you just announced immediate lockdown. I think South Africa would have... cause some chaos if that was the case.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think panic is, is ultimately um, uh, the approach that, that a, lot of, a lot of people follow um, in terms of that reaction. Um, and, and it's tough not to, um, to be completely honest. Uh, what was something else that came out of the South Africa Club this last week? I saw something on social media, Barry, um, an extract of the government gazette um, where they've actually passed into law. Um, fines and criminal offence for anyone who deliberately spreads fake news, ultimately a limitation on freedom of speech.
1: Yeah, a really big topic and really interesting. Um, I haven't seen this kind of legislation much elsewhere in the world, um, but obviously everyone is dealing with the same level of misinformation and fake news around the COVID-19. Unfortunately, in these kinds of panic and these types of situations where the the information is a bit um, shaky and not everyone knows what's going on, everything's uncertain, there are malicious actors out there who intentionally spread this kind of misinformation to try and profit off it or just try and get get a rise out of people. Um, And so, like like you say, they've announced that if you are spreading this misinformation, it is now jailable. Um, And so it's a bit tough to understand how to enforce that. It's hard to know um, whether I'm sharing something that I think might be true but isn't true. Um, So it's a very challenging piece of of work. I'm not sure how it's going to impact our country. Um, But it certainly is a wake-up call to all of those who are thinking about spreading things that they shouldn't be spreading. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, it's one step in the fight against fake news, which is absolutely rampant at the moment.
0: Absolutely, I mean we've seen a couple of these debates happen in South Africa and uh, a lot of the time it's it's kind of from the ANC uh, trying to limit uh, you know, what people are saying about them. Um, and so those attempts have, have really not proved successful. But it, it, what was interesting for me um, was how quickly this was passed into legislation. Obviously it's a lot easier to, to pass through this because you can all see the benefits for it. Um, we, we spoke last week about people who were spreading uh, some, some messages that were not true. Um, and so yeah, I think this can only be positive. The only thing I worry about it is a lot of people who are commentators and they just commentate on the facts um, are actually now overly cautious on this and are actually just choosing not to speak at all. That's always the worrying side effect.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one of South Africa's crowning jewels for so long, our constitution really does enshrine the concept of free speech, right? And so I have this vivid memory of going to visit Singapore and being blown away by how little free speech there is in Singapore compared to here in yeah. South Africa. So it certainly is worrying in certain cases. I think because we're in this like semi-wartime scenario, if all the other rules seem to be suspended, right? So it's hard to know what impact this is going to have on the country long term. Uh, like you say, I think for COVID-19 it makes all the sense in the world. Definitely. But hopefully it doesn't set a precedent going forward. I think. As a country, we have to hold on to that freedom of speech. It's really important for us. I think the fact that we can have the kind of debates we have in South Africa, um, we, we often can have the kind of debates that you can't, you don't see elsewhere in the world. Like yep. when I think about the UK debates or the US debates or Singapore specifically, um, you can't say some of the things you can say here in South Africa. Um, so yep. it's one of the few things that I really do am proud of when it comes to our constitution and like wha- how we run our country. And so hopefully this is just for this little wartime scenario and it doesn't actually burrow its way slowly into the rest of the constitution.
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Now let's move on to Europe. Well, let's start with Italy, the worst affected in Europe. Um, We've obviously been looking at the number of deaths that come out of Italy Every single day, and that's numbers been going up um, until this last week, until uh, the 23rd of March, where we saw that first decrease on the uh, day-to-day number of deaths. Um, there's obviously still a full lockdown uh, in force there, lockdown in a- in action, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, really, really tough place that Italy finds itself in. Um, one of the things we can see, though, on the on the positive side, um, is loads of these amazing, inspiring videos of people singing on their balcony, connecting with their neighbors. Um, Obviously, Italy is known for that sort of close interaction. And it really is so nice to see that happening uh, in these really, really woeful times.
1: Yeah, it's so important in these dark times to be able to find those moments of joy and those moments of hope. The one video that stood out for me, Chad, was I saw a video of two apartment blocks that are across the road from each other, (laughs) not across the road, across like a path. And on the one side, there was a guy giving a fitness class. So he was doing it on one side, giving all the exercises and then the camera pans to the other side of the apartment <laughs> block. And there's like 30 to 40 people on their balconies doing star jumps wow. and burpees and planks Amazing. and all that good stuff, following the guy on the other side of the path. Wow. Uh, and so those kind of videos really do give you a little bit of warmth that people are still trying their best to be connected to other people. They're trying to keep fit and keep sane in in their, in their isolation. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, those videos really do like put a smile on my face and it shows how the power of humanity can prevail. I really do believe the power of humanity will prevail in this and the more we can stay connected to each other socially, not in person, yeah. um, and make sure <laughs> that we're looking after each other and looking after ourselves, uh, the easier this is going to be.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's such an important one. Um, in terms of a parody of that, I saw a little video coming out from South African comedian Trevor Noah, um, who now lives in New York. Um, and you know, he kind of went out and started singing, uh, and one of his neighbors swore at him, <laughs> which is really funny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that is quite a, a typical New York thing. But hopefully, uh, you know, we can lighten ourselves uh, in in these times and and really just just try and get through this um, in the best way possible. Um, moving on to France uh, after we spoke last week, the very next day they implemented their lockdown on Tuesday, um, which to me seems like one of the most intense forms of a lockdown that I've seen so far. People have to fill in a permit to leave their house um, with a clear, specific reason, um, which really, really seems quite insane. Um, and on the back of that, in terms of the mitigating factors that have been announced, uh, we've seen Emmanuel Macron announce a suspension of payment of taxes, uh, rent, social charges, water, electricity, and gas. Um, this, for me, is fantastic. Uh, what, a, what a better way um, to actually directly inject relief uh, to all of those who are struggling the most uh, without having to fill in forms, paperwork, etc. Um, immediately, you have this direct form of relief. I think it's fantastic. It's a really interesting strategy. It's
1: something I wouldn't have thought of because often we think of those kind of costs, our rent and whatnot, as fixed costs, right? We kind of assume, cool, those debit orders are completely locked down. We can't change those at all. And so when we're trying to like, be more frugal, we think about our discretionary spending. We try and cut corners in other ways. But like you say, being able to inject a relief into those fixed costs and make them non-existent, it really does help those people manage that economic blow. Um, And you don't have to wait, like you say, for a few days or for a few weeks for a fund to be in place to then deploy money based on certain applications. It's immediate. It's already there. And it really helps people uh, live on a month-to-month basis. And so really interesting strategy. How they're paying for it, I don't know. um, But a really fascinating way of giving relief to those people. And uh, we'll have to wait and see if any other countries copy them.
0: I mean, one of the other things we haven't really touched on too heavily at the moment is the different forms of enforcement we've seen. Um, so in France, you know, you've got these pictures of, of the military out and about. Um, obviously, Barry, you, you said you've, you've seen a bit of a barracks being set up down the road from you. Obviously, we're yet to see how, how that's going to play out. Um, but on this side, it certainly seems like the approach of uh, police persuasion uh, rather than enforcement is going to be followed. I mean, like they said, they, they're going to roll out fines uh, where police can fine you if they need to. Um, but. But it certainly sounds like they want people to, uh, the police to just go through and, and try and persuade whoever uh, they can to adhere to these measures. Yeah, it, it's going to be it's been interesting
1: to watch. I think that it's going to be fun for the first few days. I think everyone will be able to manage a few days or maybe a week or so. We'll have to wait and see when we get to week two and week three when people start to get bored and people start to yeah. push boundaries. Then how do you make sure you keep enforcing those strict rules? I think what we've seen with 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 Asia and how they've managed to s- stabilize the situation over there. We have to adhere to these rules, right? And everyone has to do it. It really matters that everyone is on their their best behavior and that we make sure that we enforce this to the letter. I've been reading articles about China and Singapore and, and Japan and South Korea and stuff and they have very, very strict enforcement. And because they're natural rule-following uh, societies, they really have managed to stabilize things, right? Yeah. But if you get to the situation in South Africa where we're not a rule-following society at all, it's interesting to see whether the military are actually gonna be able to enforce this, whether the police are gonna be able to enforce it, and do the citizens take it seriously enough to enforce it on themselves, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, you only have so many policemen, you only have so many people, you can't be everywhere at all times. And so, where they're gonna monitor like high traffic areas, where they're gonna do random stuff, I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see over the next two weeks.
0: Yeah, we'll certainly have to see how it plays out. I mean, I certainly know there's about 20,000 military um, people who are are getting ready in the background here. Uh, Not sure exactly what they're getting ready for or what it means, um, but we'll we'll certainly have to see. In terms of setting precedent, which we just discussed a little bit before, Barry, um, does it worry you at all that the government uh, are able to sort of mobilize the military, uh, you know, sort of given all of that state corruption and and state capture we've seen in the past? It's
1: hard to answer. I think that's I'm happy there's more hands on deck. I think it's important that we get more support to the police service. Um, Based on what we've seen and kind of the interactions we have, we're not that confident about our military in general, right? So the South African military forces has been – it's kind of seen as a joke, to be honest. I mean, there isn't much respect from the South African public regarding the military. Um, And so, like you say, there's lots of things going on behind the scenes. We're not exactly sure what's happening. Um, At the moment, I think everyone's just trying to – be hands on deck and be like feet on the ground to try and help the situation. And we'll have to see what actually happens once a lockdown starts and how they can interact with people and how they can interact with the police. Um, it's likely that we won't actually have much interaction with them, especially if they spread across the city and across the country because we have so few of them.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, Moving on to the last one in Europe, Germany has uh, come out and and enforced a ban of any gathering of more than two people. Um, Obviously, this is exactly the same as the UK, where you can now not uh, have a gathering of more than two people. Um, But yeah, I mean, I just never thought in my lifetime I would see numbers like that being thrown out by the government. It is crazy. It's extraordinary times call
1: for extraordinary measures. And so this is one of those. And uh, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, if you think about it because the num- the arbitrary numbers we've been using in the past of six people for a wedding or 50 or 100 or 200 doesn't really matter. The virus can transmit between one and two yeah. people, right? Yeah. It really doesn't matter what the number is. I think this is just a way of in- enforcing the fact that unless you're with the people that you actually live with to not go into contact with anybody else. Um, and so it is a very bizarre time to be alive. It, certainly, it feels like we're living in moments of history, it really does, um, for good or for bad. Yep. And so I think that these sorts, of, these sorts of things we'll look back on in the past and think about, oh, how crazy was it that at one time you couldn't socialize with any more than two people?
0: Quite insane indeed. Now, if we move on to Australia, uh, we've actually seen their prime minister. We spoke quite a lot about him uh, when it came to the Australia fires. Um, and he's now put out a statement in terms of their response. And they're announcing a package of relief uh, that comes to $189 billion Australian dollars. Again, a staggering amounts of money. Um, the one thing that I found really interesting about his briefing uh, is that he stressed that this is a six-month plan and that there's no shortcuts. Um, a little bit of expectation management there, Barry. It's really
1: important, right? Um, I think we all understand that this is gonna be a longer than 21 day fight. It's probably gonna be a, a month long or year long fight. Um, and so I think what Australia are doing is trying to, as you say, manage those expectations and make sure people understand that after a lockdown, like an urgent short-term lockdown, the fight doesn't stop. And, and so we have to think more long-term about that. I think with so many countries around the world dealing with urgent, immediate kind of things, they're all talking about the next 21 days, the next week, the next few days. Um, but it's important to also think about the medium to long-term, right? Because once the lockdown ends, how do you go back to normal life? And so what Australia are trying to do is trying to put in place in the minds of their citizens what does a six-month plan look like so people can actually prepare, prepare themselves for it and actually get ready for it. Um, I think that it would be good for all of us to realize that it's not a 21-day fight and take, it, yeah. take advice from some of these six-month plans because our lives are changed for the next little bit.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree there more. Lastly, we talk about Asia and the hotly spoken topic of the Olympics. Uh, We spoke about this last week on our episode um, where, you know, the body were just not making any calls on uh, canceling or postponing this thing. Um, They really just held steadfast in their position that this, that the games were going to happen. Barry's now told me this morning uh, that they've been postponed, uh, which is really good to see that they've now come to their senses. Yeah, I think for
1: a long time they were buckling to the economic pressure of these games and they didn't want to postpone it at all. Because obviously Japan and the IOC must have spent a crazy amount of money getting ready for these Olympics. And obviously the Olympics is a big deal in the two weeks that they happen. And so it's quite an important reputational thing to them to keep them going. Um, but f- with so much social pressure on them to cancel or postpone, I think they finally bow to it. I think it makes a lot of sense, right? it's not the end of the world to cancel the Olympics or postpone the Olympics. I think for those two weeks, the whole world is watching and everyone's enraptured by it and really loves it. But after a while, you kind of forget about it. And with the exception of one or two superstars, you don't really think about the Olympics in between the four years. So I think... As a matter of life and death, as a matter of trying to stop the spread, it makes all the sense in the world. I know Japan are going to suffer immensely because of the economic benefit they're going to lose out on and the amount of money they spent on stadiums and all that good stuff. Um, But I think at the end of the day, common sense has prevailed. And I, for one, am very glad to see it. We don't have any information as to when it's going to be yet. All we know is not going to happen now in July. So who knows if it's the end of 2020, if it's 2021, if it's going forward, no one knows yet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, completely agree with you there. I mean, the thing for me is all of those people who have been preparing for the last three and a half years, um, who now have to put those plans on hold, um, which is which is insane. You're at your peak physical condition, uh, mentally at the ready, um, but like you said, makes the sense in the world. Um, Barry, do you think we're going to see that four-year intervals um, being thrown out, and potentially this moves into twenty twenty-one? I hope not, because it's really easy to, to like divide by four and know if the <laughs> Olympics is
1: coming up or not. So just for my mental sanity, it would be nice if it stayed on a nice even number. Yep. Um, but who knows? It, it, it really is completely uncertain right now. I think, that's, I, I think it's safe to say it won't happen in 2020. I don't see a, a way that we can f- get it in the end of 2020. Yep. So it's likely 2021 or, or, or going forward. But obviously, you've got the Winter Olympics in 2022 as well. So you're trying to fit it in between there and trying to make things right. work. Um, And so I'm sure they are looking at a thousand different contingency plans and a thousand different ideas. But for the moment, we just don't know enough about what the world's going to look like in a few months' time to make any reasonable decisions.
0: Absolutely, and uh, it's sort of sensible to, to put a hold on that for the meantime. Um, the last one in Asia, I saw a little story coming out of Taiwan, um, where a man was actually fined uh, thirty three thousand US dollars um, for refusing to quarantine. This guy just wanted a night out and hit the clubs. Yeah, it's
1: it's it's typical. It's typical of the way that Asian societies run, like the strict enforcement, and that's why they've been able to get things under control. Is because, for example, this one guy goes out and he gets fined a huge amount of money. <laughs> um, and so I think wh- one of the, one of the things we have to learn from Asia is the way they've dealt with this and the way they've put these strict measures in place and actually enforced them. I was reading chat about um, the the measures in China at the moment, and if you have the disease in China, they put a tracking like pixel on your phone because oh, obviously wow. they have uh, the government has access to all your your stuff. And so I read a story about a guy whose phone died at like 7.30 in the morning, and oh. he had the, had the disease. And by by 7.40, I think, he had a phone call from the government, and, bec- and he didn't answer it. And <laughs> by 7.45, the government were at his house. No way. So I, I, it just kind of emphasizes how seriously they're taking it over there, especially in yep. China. And obviously, there's huge issues there with surveillance. But putting those sure. aside, <laughs> like the measures they have in place to try and track the spread of this disease and try and kill it at its core... Is, is exactly to be expected from Asia. So I think I understand this Taiwanese example. I wonder if it would ever happen in like a Western context. It would be a very, very different story, I think, because we have very different cultural expectations as to the impact of government and the impact of the police. Um, but yeah, it really shows how seriously people are taking these.
0: Absolutely, I mean that's insane. Uh, you know that the guy's been tracked. it would be really interesting to see if they implement some uh, AI measures. Uh, if seeing as they are tracking this um, and and can track the the spread of it um, and potentially you know predict um, a little bit more, that'll be interesting to see as we as we move through. Um, Moving on to our non-coronavirus related news for this past week, Um, we had a little chat about the uh, World Economic Forum there in Davos, where world leaders were all in the same room and there was a side benefit of them being able to discuss certain topics. Now, one of those topics uh, was digital taxes, which the UK have been pushing quite hard on um, amidst leaving the EU. And uh, Barry's seen some news on that this past week. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so it's one of the
1: common topics we've been chatting about a lot on this this podcast is looking at the impact that these big tech companies are having around the world. And the nature of these online services like Google and Facebook and Amazon and whatnot is that they operate online and they really are everywhere. They are every single country and the service operates exactly the same. And so it's hard to know where that revenue is being earned and therefore where the taxes should be paid from. So a lot of these companies, obviously as economic capitalists, they look to situate their, their actual headquarters and their base in a tax haven in an attempt to try and minimize the amount of tax they're paying or, or not pay any tax at all. And that obviously worries all the various governments around the world because you might have a huge Facebook presence in your city and lots of people working and lots of operations and what on happening, but no tax revenue being generated from that. Yeah. And so governments around the world are trying to fix this and they're trying to like, change legislation to make way for these new like, mass internet companies that really can operate from anywhere. And this is one of the first steps forward. I think we're seeing this from the, from the UK because they've now left the EU and they're not going to now set their own legislation and their own kind of agreements with people. Definitely. So the UK are going to levy a 2% revenue tax on digital service companies, which are aimed at companies who have large sales teams in London or other piece, other, other parts of the UK. But their revenues actually funneled through other tax havens like Dublin or Luxembourg, et cetera. And so this kind of 2% tax is a first step in this direction of trying to break down these huge tech monopolies who can operate all around the world without real um, jurisdictions or without real legislation. Um, And it's targeted towards the big companies, right? So it's not looking at the mom-and-pop stores at all. For example, the threshold for this tax is that your revenue has to be greater than 500 million pounds and your UK sales, so the sales derived from inside the UK, must be greater than 25 million pounds. So they're not looking at the small stores who are selling like one or two goods or like more uh, niche kind of artisanal stuff. They're looking at the companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon, et cetera. Um, And so this tax is really going to change the economic incentives around where these big tech companies operate from and how they think about their global workforce. Um, And it's it's aimed to try and make sure that the revenue being earned in a certain place that that the government gets the right amount of tax revenue from that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, like you said, with those actual thresholds, um, it definitely seems like they're pinpointing one or two companies, Um, you know, Google, Facebook, um, and, you know, maybe a couple of others as well. Um, So those companies surely are feeling like they have a bit of a target on their backs. Um, But I mean, to me, it certainly feels like a sensible um, time to to levy a sort of tax like this when you do have these big giants um, who are ultimately earning their revenue from the source.
1: Yeah, it's much needed. And I think these companies do feel like they have a target on their back because they do. Right? We've yeah. seen all across the world people trying to break down these giant monopolies. These big tech companies have got such a huge influence around the world and have so much impact on economic policy, on politics, on a wide range of stuff that people are trying to get their hands around it and trying to manage these people and force them to be accountable. We've seen in the States, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and some other big leaders have been called into Congress to try and explain various things surrounding privacy and surrounding the way they operate, etc. So I think this is the first step of many as we try and kind of manage the amount of influence that these three or four companies have around the world and try to make sure they're acting in the best interests of the general public and not just the shareholders and not just the the engineers working at those companies. Because we have to change the way these companies think and the way they operate to make sure that we don't just end up going down a path we don't want to be on.
0: Absolutely. Well, the timing of this is quite interesting because this was quite a contentious issue for Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, France, uh, Macron wanted to proceed on this as well. Um, so interesting to see whether he's going to retaliate in this climate um, or just let it go. Let's see what happens now. Moving on to another uh Giant that is Microsoft. Um, Bill Gates has stepped down from the board uh, this past week, and uh, you know, you and I, Barry, have been chatting quite a bit about his uh, philanthropic efforts, um, which you know are sort of overshadowing his uh, massive legacy already. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this definitely feels like a bit of an end of an era.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. It's kind of a bittersweet moment. I think that on a day-to-day basis, it probably doesn't change much. I don't think he was really involved in Microsoft's board much. I think he's been focusing on his philanthropy for, for the last little bit. But this like, last step of finally leaving Microsoft for good, it kind of feels like a Steve Jobs moment, like the moment he left Apple, right? Um, it is the end of an era. He is one of the pioneers of the tech industry. When we look back on our lifetime, he'll be one of the names that everyone remembers, one of the names that really shaped the 21st century. Um, and so for him to leave Microsoft is a bittersweet moment. I think what he's created there and how he's changed the world with his technology is amazing. And it's absolutely yeah. incredible. But he's managed to build himself a whole new second career as a philanthropist. Um, and it's really being super influential in that space, potentially the most influential in the world. Um, and so I think that the COVID-19 has been the final straw. Like his f- full focus is now on this. And Microsoft will have to figure out how to move on without him.
0: Absolutely. Well, moving on to the last topic in this past week, one of the companies who is really not put out at all by all these lockdown measures enforced across the globe is Amazon, the giant that is Amazon. Um, They're actually hiring at scale um, in their distribution warehouses as they look to expand and uh, continue to global domination. Um, They've introduced uh, something new. Barry, tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, so for those who don't know, Amazon are actually in retail stores as well, surprisingly. So a while ago, they bought Whole Foods, which was a giant grocery chain in the the States. And also, they've opened up what they call Amazon Go, which is a a, a new kind of concept when it comes to grocery stores, Um, using the Whole Foods kind of branding and whatnot. But basically, the idea with this technology and this Amazon Go concept is that there are no staff, right? So you'll walk into the grocery store, it scans you as you come in, either by your phone or by your facial recognition, which is terrifying, but it scans you, knows who, it knows which customer came in, it then, all the cameras and all the technology around the store monitor what items you're taking off into your basket, what you're putting back, et cetera, and then when you walk out of the store, you don't talk to anybody, you don't pay for anything, you just walk out of the store, and your Amazon account gets charged as you walk out with exactly the items that you bought. Right? Wow. And so it's a fascinating piece of technology, and really does is a paradigm shift for the way that grocery stores could. Operate. Now, when they started these two, I think there's only two stores at the moment like this, so concept stores. And when they started, everyone was a bit confused because why would Amazon go into brick and mortar? Their whole thing is being online. So it made very little sense to go into a brick and mortar thing. And I think this this announcement really shows why they did it. And the announcement is that they are now going to license this technology to other grocery stores, right? So they're going to take this technology that they've assumedly tested in these two stores and made sure it's ready to go, and they're going to license the software to any other grocery stores around the world who want to buy it. So just like Amazon Web Services, where they built an amazing business there, it, it's likely they're gonna build the same sort of business where their licenses take to, to whoever wants to use it around the world and therefore scale their influence. So instead of building the brick and mortar stores themselves, what they can then do is sell the software, which is like world class and paradigm shifting to whoever wants to use it and earn licensing fees off of that. So it's a really interesting move. I think it finally makes sense now why Amazon went into this um, brick and mortar kind of world and obviously just to test things and make sure it works. And now you're likely to see an Amazon-powered Tesco or an Amazon-powered pick-and-pay in the future where this technology is the backbone of the store, but the store remains as is otherwise. What do you think, Chad?
0: Absolutely, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, I've seen in the meantime, while Amazon were obviously developing this, a lot of other retailers put together some sort of similar propositions. Um, And so at my local Tesco, there's a a little gadget, which I haven't used, where you can just pick it up. And as you go through your shop, you scan things as you go. So that by the time you leave the store, you've ultimately already rang everything up um, and you can sort of just do your payment. Um, Another store is Decathlon, which is a sporting goods store. Um, I was really shocked uh, when I went shopping there. And just dropped everything into a basket, um, wondering where I actually scanned things. Um, all of a sudden, all of the items were already on the screen. Um, so, you know, they've also developed some technology. The Amazon uh, technology that you mentioned definitely sounds a few notches uh, above all of these propositions. And so it'll be really cool to finally see these rolling out uh, in stores across the globe. Uh, shall we move on to our next segment, Barry? Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting.
1: On this week's stuff I found interesting, we're talking about WhatsApp. Right, and so we chatted a little bit in the past about the, the nature of WhatsApp and how different it is to, say, a Facebook and an Instagram and whatnot. And the reason is because they have end-to-end encryption. Right? So in a WhatsApp message, Facebook can't read what you're saying, whereas on a Facebook situation, they are able to see all the various messages going on around the world. Um, what this does is it really it creates a different set of contexts and different environments across the various platforms. And this is playing out very interestingly in, in the COVID-19 pandemic right now in the area of fake news and misinformation right? On platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and these guys, they are able to monitor fake news to a certain extent because they have full visibility across their platform. Yeah. So they have various AI tools in place. They have human um, collaborators who are working on eliminating fake news and whatnot. And so they have community like guidelines and community service that they can do to try and monitor the global conversation. And obviously they don't always get it right because it's, an, it's yeah. a nigh-impossible task to try and monitor that level of conversation. But they can do something to kind of get at the worst of the worst. In a WhatsApp um, circumstance, it's very, very different. Because of the encryption, because we want our messages to be completely private, they have no ability to see into those things. And so what's happened is that we've seen a huge increase in fake news and misinformation being spread on WhatsApp itself. And that's a big concern as we think about COVID-19, we try and monitor the panic, we try and manage people's expectations, we try and make sure that the, the health advice is correct. Facebook doesn't have any way to be involved in that conversation. And so it brings up, again, the same topic we chatted about a lot in this podcast, Chad, is the issue of privacy and at what cost. So at what cost are we taking to give full privacy to our messages? Obviously, everyone thinks that's a decent idea and a good idea. But what happens if we can't monitor these sorts of big fake news debacles that can really change the way a country runs?
0: Absolutely. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, I mean... For me, Barry seems to be on a witch hunt at the moment. Any link that I okay. send him uh he you know quizzes me on where I got it from um, and to be completely honest it's it 's kind of the way we all should be really um This is not the way that WhatsApp has always operated. If we think about the early days um the first couple of years at least, there was a noted change uh, where i 'm sure everyone who uses the platform remembers um in every single chat seeing. This chat is now encrypted, um, and you know there's obviously really important reasons for that. But like you said, there's there's certain limitations too, um, and so yeah, this is ultimately uh, the debate. Uh, on my side, I don't want to see uh, Facebook getting more access to more data, um, but I want to see more people doing what you're doing, Barry, uh, and actually challenging the information that's going around, actually thinking about things before you share them, um, because you know a lot of the time we like to put blame onto somebody else. Um, But we should ultimately take responsibility for this as well. We're the users of the platform uh, and it's us who's, who's sharing the data.
1: Yeah, it's something I feel very strongly about. I think that um, in the 21st century world that we live in, we understand the perils of the internet. We understand how easy it is to spread information. We understand the concept of fake news after watching it in political like, circumstances across the world. And so it's important that we all understand as individuals, we have a responsibility to make sure that something is true and factual before we share it, right? I I also fall into the trap of doing exactly that, of just seeing something that looks interesting. And because I want to share it first, I want to be be known as the person who gets to the scoop before anybody else, right? There's some sort of weird social reward when it comes to being (laughs) able to share something before it actually happens. And so I understand it completely and I fall into the same trap. But we have to understand that in today's world where misinformation is so prevalent and can be so influential, it comes down to each and every one of us thinking about what we're sharing before we share it and really understanding that let's do a quick Google search. It doesn't take a long time. It is a quick Google search to make sure that the information we're receiving is, is, is valid and it's important and it's accurate. Um, and if we all do this, it will be much, much safer as a global dialogue and social media won't be as toxic as it is right now.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more there, Barry. Uh, Let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. So now we've got a bit of a discussion on what's happening in the future. Um, And, uh, you know, Barry introduced this topic to me. Um, I felt like a complete idiot when I asked him such a silly question. Um, But Barry, let's tell the listener about what you discovered this week.
1: Yeah, so what I discovered this week was a brand new e-ink device that I found quite fascinating. So for those of you who don't know, e-ink is that thing you use on your Kindle, right? So it's a screen that doesn't have, it's not LCD, it's like a different form of screen. Um, and what it does is it doesn't have the same sort of glare, it doesn't have the same sort of reflection. It's often only black and white and it's used for low power situations. So for example, your Kindle can operate for two to three weeks without having to charge it and that's because of this e-ink screen. And basically what the screen does is just black and white pi- pixels that are s- switched on or off and that determines what you're seeing on that screen. So for reading, it's perfect because it gives you the right kind of reading environment. It kind of feels like a normal book even though it's not a normal book and, yeah. and it really has, sh- has shifted the way we people read around the world. Now this e-ink technology, uh, again, what's important about it is that it uses very low amounts of energy to display information. And this device that I found this week, Chad, actually uses zero power, which I thought was quite interesting. So what it is, it's a, it's a small device that uses NFC, so that same technology used to tap your credit card or tap your cell phone, etc. that access to access point to point technology, it uses that to transfer information from your phone to the device. So for example, you take your phone, and you put it against the device for a short period of time, it transfers whatever image or whatever piece of text you want on that screen, it changes the pixels on that screen, and then when you take your phone away instead of clearing the pixels remain as is so what you're able to do is use that as a permanent device a permanent display board without having to power it so i think it's quite fascinating because as we think about more being more eco-friendly and the the battle for power and all these good things here is a screen you can use in various environments that doesn't require you to plug it in
0: Absolutely, uh, really a cool little device. Earlier, Barry and I were going a bit back and forth with each other in terms of use cases. Um, and, you know, we were actually a little bit dumbfounded. Um, as cool as it is, um, you know, it, it, it does fall short of a lot of different things. Um, but I certainly think the fact that we are now talking about transferring power wirelessly, uh, I think that's where the innovation comes in here. Uh, so if we look at how wireless charging technology has evolved over the last couple of years and now the actual technology of, of transferring data across wirelessly um, to this device that can firstly use a bit of a charge um, to, to change its display and secondly actually get that data from wherever it is that we're wirelessly transmitting it and I would imagine this would be a, a fairly instantaneous process um, which is really really cool. The silly question that I asked earlier Um, was whether you would have to um, connect your phone to the back of this device every time you wanted to turn the page. Um, But obviously, this is not uh, indicated for normal reading applications. Um, But still cool tech nevertheless, Barry.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think some of the use cases that have been bandied about are things like menus at restaurants or bulletin boards in a hospital, or for example, any kind of bulletin board that you want to hold a message for a certain period of time. But like you say, those use cases don't really excite us as much as the potential for this kind of technology in other aspects. So what we're hoping for is that there's going to be a springboard yep. for innovation in the space, and you might see some cool, never, th- never thought of before ideas coming from this. For example, if you're trying to take some technology away for weeks at a time where you won't be able to plug it. In, how can you take that with you and how do you make sure that you can transfer power between devices there's a lot of interesting little niche use cases here um, and we'll have to wait and see if it's a springboard for innovation like we think it might
0: absolutely exciting indeed Uh, let's keep our eyes peeled for that moving on to our next segment develop and grow so if you've felt like the previous bit of the episode has been doom and gloom, certainly on the coronavirus piece, um, you know this is the point of the podcast where you can actually listen in. And uh, this is ultimately where we, where we look to ourselves and how we can feel better and, and manage with the things that we're going through uh, and improve ourselves and improve our lives. Um, so those listeners who are watching on YouTube uh, will be really happy to know that for the first time in history, I've brought a prop along today. I love it, Chad. <laughs> I love it. So this prop is a book and it is called The Life Plan. Uh, It's by a life coach by Shana Kennedy. Uh, This book and the design that I just showed you on the screen is a Kiki K limited edition design. So any other book you'll see might look different on the cover, um, but obviously the substance of what's inside will be the same. And uh, to be completely honest, this is a book that I've been working my way through for some time. Um, I'm only probably 40% of the way through. And uh, what's great about it is it's a book. Um, Obviously there are pieces of uh, narrative and and guidance and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But ultimately what differentiates it is that there are sections for you to fill stuff in. Um, So this is a life guidance book if you'd like. Uh, And so in every couple of pages, there's a a few activities that you need to do. And uh, ultimately there's a lot of thought work that you need to do. So this is not a book that you're gonna pick up and and sort of read through on your downtime. Uh, It's gonna take you quite a long time to get through because there's some introspection that is required on the back of this. which is why I think it's so worthwhile. Um, So in terms of the journey that I've taken so far in my 40% of the book, um, we sort of started off by looking at uh, where you are now. Um, look at looking back at the key uh, events that have happened in your life to, to shape you as who you are at the moment um, and then kind of move from there to to looking at your values uh, to what is your purpose? What is it that drives you um, ultimately to set a sort of decision making framework uh, from which you now know the two or three things that should guide your decisions going forward? Um, and, and so there's been a lot of that. We've looked at, uh, habits and, uh, you know, decluttering, simplifying your life, all of those types of things and where we're at at the moment, which is really what I wanted to chat about on the podcast, um, was a three year life plan. Uh, so this is obviously as its description uh, says, it's a three year life plan. Um, I really liked the three year format of this, um, because t- typically we, we go to an interview and somebody will ask what our plan is for the next five years, um, Otherwise, we'll set our goals annually and we'll literally look at the year ahead. Um, But what I like about three years, uh, which I haven't really heard in this format, is it's that perfect kind of distance. It's not too far away that we feel like we're talking about fiction. Um, And it's also not too close where we think things are not reasonable or realistic. Um, And so here are some of the guidelines for this. Um, I took about two hours to do this, um, funnily enough. She sort of suggests you take about an hour to do it. Um, But here are some of the guidelines. You start off by writing down your age on a blank piece of paper, your age in three years' time. And that's quite a powerful thing because uh, immediately you're setting yourself up for what it would feel like to be that age, uh, what it is that you expect to have done by that age, etc., um, etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Additionally, write down the age of, of family members as well um, and give yourself permission to let go for this next hour, hour and a half, two hours, however long it takes. Um, you take all your worries and doubts and put them to one side, um, and dream that if everything went as it could, um, what would my life look like in three years' time? And this dream is unedited uh, by any lack of a potential money, skills, or time. Uh, and so you, know, you ultimately need to get specific with it. Um, where is it that you're gonna be working? Who are you going to be spending your time with? What is it that you're going to be doing in your spare time? And what are you going to be earning in a very specific amount of money? Um, So you ultimately are are really getting really specific about the things that you really want to achieve and what you really want your life to look like in three years' time. And uh, for me, I left this, uh, I had a lot of fun in the process, and I left it just feeling really grateful for where I am at the moment. Um, And I left it with a, a clear vision, uh, ultimately of, of where I want to go um, which I thought was fantastic Um, I thought it was really really valuable um, I've done obviously a lot of self-help stuff in the past um, but what I really like about this book is that it forces you to write stuff down for the YouTube viewers again is it actually leaves you spaces to write stuff in um, so yeah certainly one that I think is worthwhile checking out especially uh, given we're going to be having a lot more time on our hands Barry. Yeah, I think it's
1: a perfect time for these sorts of things. I think we can have a lot of time to ourselves, a lot of time to think about our lives from a more objective and third-party perspective. And these sorts of guided journeys are really valuable. It really does sound cool, Chad. Some of the things that I picked up from what you were saying, the first piece is that I think it is interesting that a three-year plan is a bit different to what you normally see around the place. It kind of reminds me of a quote. I can't remember who it is, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But the idea is that we overestimate what we can achieve in a day, but underestimate what we can achieve in a decade. Um, and talking about the fact that we, uh, when we set setting goals, is often ho- that the time frame is very important. And a three-year time frame feels to me to be the best of both of those worlds because yeah. it's long enough to actually like see genuine progress in a certain task or a certain habits or a certain way of life, but it's also not f- so far away that it feels like science fiction. Um, and exactly. so that that's a really cool time frame. I think it's a cool thing to do. The second piece I also think is interesting, is like you say, is, is thinking of yourself at a certain age. I think it's hard to... S- Like, think, cool, in five years' time, what should my life look like? Whereas if I think about my 30-year-old self or my 40-year-old self, immediately an image comes to mind because for some reason, just that age number allows me to form an image and an idea of what my life might look like at that point. So it's a great little device to force you to be more specific and more direct with what you want for that kind of period of your life. Um, and so I think it sounds amazing. I think that these things are very valuable, these guided journeys to try and help you with introspection, help you look at your life uh, more, more realistically and more honestly. Um, and it really is this kind of internal work that downtime is so valuable for. So I'd encourage anyone listening right now to use this time productively. Don't just sit for the next 21 days on Netflix, right? Like, Obviously, a little bit of Netflix is good enough, but uh, really use this time to think carefully about your life plan, where you're trying to go, and why you're trying to get there. Um, That's really important. One more thing I think might be good to add here is, is a parable that I heard that I think is quite interesting, and it talks about ladders and houses, right? So, Chad, if you imagine that you're climbing some sort of corporate ladder or some sort of life ladder... Often we are, we're so busy climbing that ladder that by the time we get to the top of it, we look out and we realize, oh wait, this is on the wrong house. I actually wanted to be on that house. I wanted <laughs> to be on that house, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's important in these times to be able to look at, is our ladder leaning against the right house? Um, or do we need to backtrack and change our life plan? Um, and we don't often get these opportunities to check which ladder we're on because we're often in so deep in the nitty gritty and in the, uh, the dirty work of day to day life. And this 21 day lockdown for most yep. of us should be that opportunity to step back from our lives, to look at it more objectively and make sure our ladder is on the right house.
0: Absolutely. Uh, that's such a great analogy. Um, I, I really love it. Um, and you're right. It's the right time for that. Um, so let's certainly do that thought work. If any of you do pick this up and actually do try these exercises, let us know what you think. Uh, ultimately, this is a, a activity book for, for adults uh, and I think a really important one. On the topic of ladders on the house, uh, there's an app called House Party, um, which is essentially letting us uh, socialize with our friends across the world or even across the street street given the current lockdown measures Um, and we can now have house parties where we can actually play games with each other Um, i think really cool i actually had my first call last night um, which was really cool there's four games that are there as an option Um, and yeah really just a cool way to to spend our time and keep those social links open uh, in this much needed time
1: Yeah, so as we try and uh, recapture these social dynamics in virtual environments, this is a great little app to use. And we have to take this seriously, right? As we're going to go into this self-isolation, we have to understand we need social connection as human beings. And so whatever we can do to recreate these things in a virtual environment, I'm all for it. So it sounds like fun.
0: Yeah, it really, really is quite cool. Um, I actually try to get Barry to join in, but uh, you know the man's really popular, um, so you know he <laughs> didn't he didn't join me for last night. But um, I mean, some of the games is like I said, there's four games there. Um, I haven't tried them all, but some of the ones that I have tried, uh, the first one is a, a drawing game. Uh, so ultimately, you'll 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 draw something, and everyone has to everyone on the call has to guess what it is. Uh, the second one is a quiz game, um, which you know I thought was really really good, really responsive, considering I was talking to people from. Uh, South Africa as well, um, where, you know, you ultimately have various topics that you can pick, uh, and everyone selects the right answer, and straight away, like I said, lag-free, um, you know, the result displays on the screen, and there's obviously some really nice little talking points that come on the back of that. Um, the the third game is Heads Up, which uh, we saw Ellen DeGeneres invent a couple of years ago, um, and so it's nice to see that integrated here. And then the last one, I must confess I haven't tried, uh, but it's something called Guac and Chips, I think, uh, which sounds interesting <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: definitely have to give that a go and Chad I've actually got an idea how about if any listeners out there who have made it this far in the podcast episode and are, are keen to play House Party with me and Chad uh, let's, let's set up an across the pond little game so drop us a message if you're keen we can play some games while you're self-isolating wherever you are in the world it'd be great to meet some of you listeners and really get to know you a bit and have good fun over the, over the net what do you think Chad?
0: Definitely. That sounds absolutely awesome. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, would like to connect with us. So I think that'd be great. Uh, If you're not sure where you can uh, just get in touch. Um, We've got a Facebook page called uh, Across the Pond Podcast, um, as well as uh, on our YouTube channels. We've got um, Anchor is the podcast uh, platform that we publish through. You can send us voice notes there as well. Um, And yeah, let's get the party going. Let's have a little house party um, with all of our listeners. Now, moving on to the next one, uh, Barry, you've mentioned there are some really cool concerts that are happening across the world i've been out of touch but tell us about this
1: yeah so one of the things in this self-isolation phase as the whole world is dealing with it a lot of big uh, musical stars are trying to use their platform for good and trying to entertain and trying to distract people from the chaos that's happening outside and so what's been really cool that i've been watching chad is a, a concert series called together at home and what's happened is that a bunch of really famous musicians have gone into their little home studio or their living room or wherever they've got a musical instrument and performed like a 30 to 40 minute concert of all their favorite songs um, at home just by themselves. And what's been really been cool is to watch them kind of break down their music and talk about it more uh, artistically and thinking about why it was created and why they wrote the pieces. And then to watch them play it live with no like backup, no other musicians, no nothing, just them in their living room by themselves. Uh, it's a really really cool little idea. I've watched the John Legend one the Charlie Puth one there was a a Chris Martin one so a whole bunch a One Republic one was really good a whole bunch of them so if you are keen if you're looking for things to do you're looking for good music go and search the hashtag Together at Home on any of the social media platforms and I'm sure you'll find a ton of them
0: absolutely amazing out of interest Barry do you have to pay for these? Not at
1: all, not at all. So the idea is that they're trying to raise awareness and funds for the COVID virus. So it's all through the Global Citizen um, NPO, which is a giant organization that's trying to do good in the world. So they're all free. A lot of them are on the artist's Instagram Lives or Facebook Lives, et cetera. So you'll be able to pick them up if you're following them. Um, But they're all free, completely available to everybody, and a really cool way to see inside the living room of one of your favorite artists
0: absolutely amazing Uh, that definitely does sound like a really cool experience Um, obviously now you know at home we've got these uh, decent high definition uh, devices and a lot of the time uh, when we're live you know we're right at the end of the stadium hardly even able to see anything Uh, so that's really a cool idea Uh, and hopefully it it actually changes the way we watch musical concerts going forward Uh, let's now hear what's on your mind what's on your mind
1: All right, so thank you again for everyone who sent in questions. We really do appreciate it. we got a ton of questions around the COVID virus, obviously, um, and so we're gonna tackle two more of them today. The first one is from Jared. And so Jared is asking, do you have any advice for being productive while working from home, especially during the self-isolation period? Now this is a very key question because as, as we mentioned, a lot of people are gonna be working from home now and it's a very yep. different beast working at home when you've got the distractions of the TV and your bed <laughs> and the, the pantry with all the sn- the junk food in it. It's yep. very different to working in an office environment which is kind of built for productivity and built for trying to keep you in your seats at your desk. So, f- so for me, this is a, a great question because I've been dealing with this for the last little bit and I have done it very poorly for long periods of time. Uh, I find it very difficult to <laughs> self-discipline myself to work for long periods of time while I'm at home just because yep. there are so many distractions and so let me share some of the things that I have found useful and then I'll throw it over to you Chad the first thing is that it's very easy to get into a habit of being lethargic at home so it's important that if you want to be productive during that day that you still get up a- in the morning and you do your normal routine as normal so you get Definitely. out of bed you make your bed you brush your teeth you get into decent clothes etc it's very tempting to think oh, I'm just going to lie in my, p- in my pajamas in my bed or on my cart and I'm going to work from there yep. And yep. that can be fun, but I've, what I've found from my experience, it doesn't really work. It doesn't. You're not as productive because your mind hasn't made that shift to like, cool, now I'm in work mode. Yep. And so those kind of mini shifts when it comes to the clothes that you wear, the time you wake up, the place that you work, those are important psychological shifts to let your brain know, okay, cool, I'm no longer in relaxation mode, I'm now working into work mode. And so those changes in context I found very, very important. The second thing is that don't neglect the rest of your your habits, right? So, your exercise, your eating well, those sorts of things. All of those bits and pieces really do make a big difference when you think about your entire day a, a, as, a, as a whole. What you have to understand is that at work, you've got a bunch of habits already in place. You kind of run on autopilot every single day. And so, if you've gotten to a decent routine there, then hopefully the autopilot works in your favor. The moment you come home and try to work from home for the first time, you're starting from scratch. And so the habits you build right at the beginning are very important. So it's important to maintain your exercise, maintain getting up every now and then, don't just sit in a chair the whole day. Maintain the various good habits that hopefully you've had in place at the office environments, but bring them into a home home context. And the last thing I thought I'd share is that it's okay not to be super productive the entire day. I felt that a little bit of guilt when it comes to the fact that, oh, maybe I haven't worked as hard as I could have today. And I kind of feel guilty because I'm at home. I should be as comfortable as possible. I should have no excuses. It's important to remember that when you're in an office environment, I certainly remember it when I was there. There's a lot of time that we waste in an office without yep. realizing we're wasting it, right? And so it's, imp- it's important to realize that the comparison of what you can achieve at home versus at the office has to be realistic. You can't expect that all of a sudden you're going to put on 12 hours of amazing work during that day because you're trying to meet a deadline. Uh, so be kind to yourself and take those routines seriously. That has been my advice. What do you think, Chad?
0: I mean I think you've hit the nail on the head there Barry there's not a whole lot that I can add um in terms of contributing what I've found most value on um I feel like getting showered and getting changed in the morning is the most important thing I think a lot of the time we like no nah, you know what I'll just kind of rock into uh, onto the laptop and you know start even an hour earlier um and you know just start working but by midday, uh, you really just feel lethargic. You feel a bit out of it, um, and so for me, getting into the shower, changing into clothes that you would, you know, normally work into, um, that's been a powerful change for me. Uh, the other thing is, if you have the option of not working in your bedroom, um, that would be great. Obviously, not everyone has that luxury, um, but being able to kind of make that mental um, note that you're actually stepping into now the next phase, you you you're not you're not in the place where you sleep. You're now in the place where you work. Um, I think that's also quite powerful. Um, But yeah, some great tips there, Barry. Um, I I certainly think our listeners will be getting some great value from those. Uh, What's the next question that we have?
1: Yeah, so the next question comes from Michael, and this question was relevant when he asked it, but obviously in the last day or so, things have changed dramatically, so it's not as relevant anymore, but it it kind of leads into a topic I wanted to discuss. So his question goes as follows. Should we avoid going to the gym or exercise classes? Would this be an effective way to prevent the spread? Right, so this was before the full lockdown. People were discussing, cool, should I go to a gym, should yep. I not go to a gym? And I know here in South Africa, Planet Fitness, which is the gym that I go to, were sending out a bunch of emails detailing all the extra measures they were putting in place, how they were cleaning their equipment yep. every hour, how they were doing all these bits and pieces, begging people to keep coming to the gym. And obviously that is all shut down now. People are not going to the gym anymore. And so the topic it leads into is how do you keep yourself fit in the self-isolation environment? So uh, as we said, it's very important to keep yourself like active as as best you can and now you can't really go running with your mates, you can't go to the gym, you can't do various things you would normally do to exercise. So a lot of your exercise is gonna be confined to your own house. So the question is can you find some sort of form of, of activity, some sort of form of physical work to keep yourself fit and active during this period? And the amazing thing about this is that the internet is your best friend. There are so many amazing online programs out there where you can watch a video, you can do even live classes with people. I've seen like the EFC gym here start to do live classes where you can like stream in live to various things. There's lots of yoga online you can do. There's tons of things Mm -hmm. online that you can do to keep fit and active, even without any equipment or without any space. And so what I would encourage you to do is do some Google searching, do some research, and try and find the little thing that that matches your personality or that kind of matches your fitness level. And then give yourself like a 21-day challenge, for example, to try and do something every single day. It's a huge step forward to make sure you don't go insane during this period. Like your physical well-being and your physical activity matters a lot when you look at your mental state throughout this period.
0: Yeah it's all so easy to just slip into um, that I'm at home now uh, and it's it's a weird one uh, when you're at work somehow you find time to squeeze a gym session in um, but somehow when you've got all this extra time where you don't spend hours commuting to work every day uh, it's so much easier to put it off um, and it's so important not to. Um, so yeah great idea there. I think those who rely on weights um, you know primarily uh, for their fitness regime are, are gonna gonna struggle a bit uh, in this time um, and yeah I mean if you can get your own little weights kits that would be great Um, in terms of this side uh, Amazon is certainly out of stock of all of that stuff Um, so yeah you you can try but I don't think you'll find anything Um, but in terms of all of those online workouts there's definitely other great things that you can do at home if you're into the hit space I know Barry's keen on that um, there's loads of people who are, are putting out those kinds of workouts. And so, yeah, just go and see what you can find. Otherwise, if you're not traditionally into cardio, maybe this is a time to give it a try. Uh, go out, get some fresh air, and uh, you know also, have some some thinking space as well. Uh, it's nice to go out and have a run um, and and just let your mind wander for a little bit. Um I I really do enjoy uh, the therapeutic effects of running. Um so yeah, definitely important things to chat about especially uh, given the time that we are of at the moment. Um I think Barry that brings us to the end of uh, our second recording of this great episode. <laughs> oh,
1: it 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 has been a long day. <coughs> Uh, f- for those of you listening, you probably <laughs> won't even realize how much effort we put into this podcast today <laughs> um, because of my stupidity. So it has been nice. a, a day of deja vu. We've had the same conversation twice, but hopefully <laughs> it's added some value to your life. Um, hopefully you found something to, to use and hopefully it gives you some sort of hope as you going forward. I think everyone is in a, in a space right now. Everyone's very worried about what's going on around the world. And so the only message I can share with you is one of hope and one of like optimism about humanity. We will prevail, we will come out of this, and hopefully we'll come out of this as better people. So I would just encourage everyone listening to take care of yourselves, take care of the people around you, um, and be kind to yourself during this period. Uh, don't don't take it too hard. Do your best to stay away from news 24-7 um, uh, and do your best to kind of look after yourself, that's what I would say.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening and uh, we hope to see you here again next week. Please do let any of your friends know about us if you think they would enjoy our podcast and uh, we'll see you again next week. Uh, You've listened to me, Chad Sturley, in London and my co-host Barry Maurice in Johannesburg, South Africa. This was episode 20 of Across the Pond. Pond Pond, pond, Across the the pond, Pond With Barry
1: and Chad